I invite you for our scripture this morning to turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, reading the first seven verses of the third chapter of Genesis. I want to entitle what I'm sharing with you this morning, A Snake in the Garden. I invite you, if you will, please, to stand with us for the reading of God's Word. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Hope you'll keep your Bible open. We'll look at some more of the material in this wonderful chapter as we go along. Let's bow for a moment of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for this portion. We acknowledge that it was, like all Scripture, inspired by your Holy Spirit. We pray, O Lord, that the same Holy Spirit may take these words and minister to our hearts and lives through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. A six-year-old boy asked me, What is sin? I said to him, it is not doing what God wants us to do. And then I attempted to teach a bit further by saying, we've all sinned. You've sinned and I've sinned. And he lifted up his brown eyes and looked up into my face and said, you? Now the boy was my grandson. And I felt that I was standing on holy ground. To think that a boy would look at someone whom he knew as well as that boy knows me and have some question about whether that person sinned. But sin is at the heart of all the problems of the universe. Now, they say in medicine that diagnosis is half the cure. If you've been through a series of tests, you know it may be more than half the cure uh, before it's over. I asked for prayer for our granddaughter yesterday. She had symptoms that might have been appendicitis, might have been an ovarian cyst, and might have been a kidney stone. After visiting the surgeon yesterday, she was told this is a virus, the symptoms of which mimic appendicitis. 
that's the, the cure was simpler than the diagnosis. Now, until we know what's wrong, we don't know what to do about it. And so I want us to look this morning at some truths about sin. Now, we sometimes think of sin only in the category of commission. What has been done that's wrong. But we ought to recognize that there are also the sins of omission. And I'm convinced unless I do what I ought to do, I may soon be doing what I should not do. That there is a positive side to avoiding falling into disobedience if I read the Word of God, if I pray, if I fellowship with Christians, if I avoid those places where I know I'm most likely to be tempted, then you see I'm doing what I should do and that gives me some strength to avoid doing what I shouldn't do. If your head's made of butter, don't sit next to the stove. <laughs> I want us to look first of all at the cause of sin. Now that, that is, is a big undertaking on my part, and I may get in a theological thicket, but I've got some theologians here I hope will rescue me. But look at, look at what happened here. I want to point out, first of all, the setting is perfect. The setting is perfect. Now, the idea that if you're in the right environment, you will not fall into sin is not so it's disproved, that idea is, by what happened in the Garden of Eden. Now, some people seem to think because we endeavor to have a spiritual atmosphere on this campus that you can come into this bubble here and you'll somehow be uh, protected from temptation. But regrettably, that is not true. It's not that simple. I visited a lady in the hospital once. She had had surgery, and while I was there, the surgeon came in, introduced himself, very outgoing kind of man, and he said to me when he learned I was her pastor, Pastor, I want you to know I've taken her evil gland out. I said, I, that's very interesting. If this surgery proves effective, I have some other people I want to get on the list. <laughs> in, in, fact, in fact, I may sign up myself. It's not that simple, is it? We sometimes say about some problems, they're systemic. Sin in humanity is systemic. And you see, there's a perfect environment. Can you imagine what it was like in the Garden of Eden? Do you know a scene on earth that you might think would even compare with the Garden of Eden? My scene is beside a, a small lake on the Cone Estate in Watauga County, Blowing Rock, North Carolina. We used to ride horses around there, have those paths up through the Cone Estate. No motorized vehicles allowed. And such a wonderful place to ride horseback. And I could sit beside of that lake and look out across that water and up toward the Cone uh, house up there and that, that would be the scene. Now, I, I was in, a, I was in a, a study on prayer one time with a noted missionary prayer leader, and this person says, I want you this morning to think of the most beautiful spot you can think of, and then she adds some people in the group to uh, stand up and, 
tell what they thought of and about every one of us had some water in that beautiful spot. It was a river. Uh, it, it was a lake. It was uh, water. I, I don't understand that. seems like it's almost written into our nature by creation to think of beauty in that way. Imagine what the Garden of Eden was. I don't know whether there were mosquitoes there or not. Uh, if they were, they were friendly to humans. Uh, a perfect setting, a perfect setting. What more could humanity want? Not only to have this perfect setting, but to walk with the Lord in the cool of the day. To walk with the Lord and to fellowship with the Lord. But I want you to look at the source here. Uh, it's perverse. And it begins with the deceiver. It begins with the deceiver. Two passages in the Old Testament give us some hints about Satan. Uh, one found in Isaiah and one found in Ezekiel. And uh, those passages deal with historic personages, but they also go beyond the description of a mere man and describe a creature made by God, made as an angel, made as possibly the... Uh, supervisor of the angels in a high position, and yet there came rebellion against God. Rebellion against God. And now, here in the garden, there's a serpent. And the best explanation I know is that Satan, the one who was cast out of heaven because his rebellion against God, used the serpent as a means of speaking to Eve. That's the best explanation I know. It, it, it was not just the snake. It was the one who was behind that creature and speaking through that creature that began to speak to Eve. And there was the deception. One word for Satan means the deceiver. And the deception was that you can find fullness of life outside the will of God that somehow God is not giving you the best that he has and you can find God's, you can find the best of life only outside the will of God and that you can go outside the will of God without consequences. Uh, those uh, results of going outside the will of God will be a better life. He's still using the same lines, my friends. Some of, some of us gathered in here talking in this chapel right now don't have an appetite for the things of God. We have an appetite for the things of this world. We think that we can get fullness of life on a human level, on a physical level, on the level of the things of this world, and that is a deception. If you had everything this world has to offer and you have missed the best that God had intended for you, then you're a pauper. You're a pauper. And so there's a deception. And it appeals to a desire on the part of Eve. It appeals to a desire. And James tells us that sin begins in that way. In the first chapter of James, remember those words in chapter 1 and verse beginning at verse 13. He says, Let no man say, When he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust or desire. 
and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. That's what happened here. You see, these desires that we have by nature have been given to us by God. One definition of sin is seeking to fulfill a God-given desire in a God-forbidden way. The desire is not the sin, but the sin is seeking to fulfill a God-given desire in a God-forbidden way. And here... Uh, the appeal is to desire. And there's a parallel between this and what uh, John calls worldliness over in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Uh, you may have ob observed that parallel, but I want to call it to your attention as we consider this this morning. In uh, 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, the Scripture says, Love not the world neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world... Now here, look at, the, look at what it says about the temptation. It was good for food, the lust of the flesh. It was good to look upon, the lust of the eyes. It was a tree to be desired to make one wise, the pride of life. All that is in the world, these three, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. And so you've got living for appetites. Now I'm not saying there's anything wrong with any desire the Lord gave us, but it's wrong when that becomes more important to me than God. At base, every sin is idolatry. Some attempt to substitute something God made for God himself. You and I are going to worship. The only question is, what are we going to worship or who are we going to worship? And the, the choices come down to these, either the creator or some form of the creation. That's the only choice we have. We're going to worship. And here Eve is deceived into believing, into believing that, that she can enjoy fullness of life in the creation without a relationship with the Creator, without that heavenly dimension that life can be full. And so you see it's appetites and appearances and ambitions that say, I can get the best out of life on my own I do not have to be in fellowship with the Creator, and that in some sense is idolatry. What is it that makes the most difference to you? Some people it's just rest and leisure. In fact, we describe, we describe a, a, a desirable life sometimes as, as making a bundle, you know, and retiring to one of the islands uh, in, in uh, the Bahamas or somewhere. Retiring to what? I mean, you to twiddle your thumbs? Uh, uh, you, you imagine what it is. I, I don't know what it would be for you. But unless it has a heavenly dimension, unless it has a spiritual dimension, you see, they had everything they could want. They had everything they could want. But when you are not thankful for what you have, 
you are not spiritually right with God when you're not thankful for what you have. Because you see, when you begin to think that uh, it, it matters most what I want and not to think it matters most what God wants, then you've gotten into the same predicament that we read about here in Genesis 3, which is called the seed plot of the whole Bible. Diagnosis is half the cure. And contrary to the Darwinian idea that there's inevitable progress, this tells us there is inevitable deterioration when humanity rebels against God. And you say, I want us to move on to one other consideration here, and that's the cost of sin, the cost of sin. And the first cost is separation, separation from fellowship with God, the first cost. Where is meaning and purpose in life going to, to, to come from? What's the source for meaning and purpose in life? What's the, what's the purpose of this watch? The one who made it knows what the purpose is. And if there's something wrong with it, the one who made it is the only one who really knows how to fix it best. And the same thing is true with humanity, isn't it? Only the one who made us knows what the purpose is and we know that it's to glorify God but there's a special way you can glorify God but not if you substitute some of his creation for him. Not if you substitute some ambition for his will. Not if you substitute some satisfaction from his will. Uh, you see separation from God but you see it begins to deteriorate beyond that. And, and it begins to bring a separation between people. The first evidence is that when God calls Eve to be accountable, when he calls Adam to be accountable, he says, the woman you gave me. Now there's already a wedge between Adam and his wife when he begins to blame her for his own lack of leadership when he begins to blame her for his problems. I'm telling you, friends, when I begin to blame anybody else for my problems, I'm going down a dead-end street. I've got to take accountability for myself, not my mother, not my uncle, not my granddaddy. Well, my granddaddy on my mother's side lived in our home until I was 10 years old, and he predicted that by the time I was 21, I'd be in the chain gang. He did. I have more sympathy with him now than I did then. <laughs> You've had rougher experiences than that, but you can't blame anybody for who you are. Uh, you can't blame anybody for who you are. I, I read a statement the other day, there are no illegitimate children, just illegitimate parents. Uh, you can't blame anybody for who you are. So, and, and when we begin to do that, it drives a wedge between people. It drives a, a wedge between people. What brings us together? What brings us together? Not our strengths, but our common weakness and our common dependence on the grace of God. That's what brings us together. All of us have our differences here, but one thing we have in common, we're stranded on the grace of God. 
We're stranded on the grace of God. You see, and, and if I take responsibility for who I am, a sinner by nature and by choice, and embrace the provision God's made for me, then I can come together with you. But if I blame you for my problems or I try to look upon my strengths in comparison to your weakness, we're going to be separated. And sin, you see, brought separation from God and it brought separation among people. But it also brought suffering. At the 16th verse, uh, when he's talking to Eve, he says, I'll greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception in sorrow thou shalt bring forth children and uh, uh, their desire shall be to your husband in, uh, in pain uh, and sorrow. Suffering came into this world. Now, friends, suffering came into this world as a result of man's rebellion against God. And that's a part of all of us. By nature, it's still a part of us. We'd rather do it our way than God's way because we can get some credit for it. But you see, there's pride involved. And if I'm not willing for God to get the glory and the honor and the praise, I am opening myself up to some of the effects of sin, uh, suffering, and, and, and struggle. He tells the, the man how he's going to have to struggle to make a living. Struggle is a part of what happened when this world fell. Friends, we're living in a fallen world. We, we have to keep that in mind. We're living in a fallen world, and those people who think they can build heaven on earth and restore us to Eden are a foolish because the only way that can be done is for God to start over. For God to start over. And the idea that we can build a utopia on earth has been uh, pursued by many all to disaster. All to disaster. That was Hitler's idea, wasn't it? He's going to build a super race. He's going to have a utopia on earth. What happens is that there's, a, there's, there's going to be a dictator somewhere that tells everybody what to do. And Peter Berger, a noted sociologist, said some years ago, he said, we have three alternatives in Western civilization. One of them is to go on down the road to degeneration and destruction. Another one is some kind of super uh, dictatorship that will control the world or spiritual and moral renewal. We're praying for spiritual and moral renewal, but you know where it's got to start, don't you? It's got to start in my heart. Uh, I, I pray constantly for God to bring revival here, but my next prayer is, Lord, revive me. Revive me. Because I need to be revived. And that's, that's, not, something, that's not something, you know, that you can can up. For tomorrow, it's like the manna that came down from heaven. I'm just as dependent on him right now as I ever have been, and I need a new touch from God now just as much as I ever have, no matter what I've experienced already. In sorrow, when you see tears, just remember, sin brought sorrow. Sin brought sorrow. Sin brought sorrow. And it's necessary for Jesus to be known as the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now I want to come to the conquest of sin. We might like this better. But I want to tell you, until we're willing to hear the diagnosis that the Scripture makes, 
We're not going to be in a position to embrace the cure. Little sin, little Savior. My theory is this. Every kind of liberalism that expresses itself on planet earth is rooted in the overly optimistic expectation that we can solve our own problems without a heavenly divine dimension. And that comes down to the personal level, friends. It comes down to the personal level. One reason we don't have more appetite for the Word of God, we fed on other stuff. We fed on other stuff and we have focused our hopes on what we can do or what somebody human can do for us when only God can do what I need to have done. Only God can do what you need to have done. Not only in saving you, I mean you're inside the gate, you're inside the ark, but where are you going from here? Friend, salvation is a gift, but it's not only a gift, it's a life to be lived. And we heard yesterday, I thought, a challenging message on living out a Christian lifestyle. One thing about that, if I don't live out a Christian lifestyle, I will quench or grieve the Holy Spirit and any attempt on my part to live the Christian life will be in the energy of the flesh. Conquest of sin. The promise. Isn't this a wonderful promise? Look at it, verse 15. He's talking about the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It, the uh, seed of the woman, shall bruise the head of the serpent and thou, uh, the seed of the serpent, shall bruise only his heel. Well, his heel has been bruised. His heel has been bruised. He has taken the sting out of death. Dr. DeHaan used to tell a story about walking in the garden with his two sons, and one of them ran ahead of him, and he was stung by a bee. And he cried out, and the little boy started to run away, and his daddy took hold of his hand and said, Wait, son, let me show you something. He called the older son over, and he said, The bee has stung your son. I mean, your brother, look here, he's left his sting in him. He has no power left to sting you. My elder brother has taken the sting for me. He's taken the sting for me. And, and, and you know what this says? This says it may look like that the devil's going to win, but here is a promise in the Garden of Eden, marred by sin, broken by sin. God breaks in and he said, Don't you worry, that sin and the serpent is not going to prevail. Darkness is not going to prevail over light. Lies are not going to prevail over the truth. Hatred's not going to prevail over love. Wickedness and impurity is not going to prevail over purity and righteousness and truth. Bless God. Don't you forget that. If that doesn't matter to you, you're too far back from the front lines to know the battle's going on. If you're up in the front of the battle in the ditches where the fighting's going on, you'll be glad to know that there is a victory in the commander-in-chief. Some of us, some of us are so far, listen to me, friends, some of us are so far from where the fighting's going on, we don't even know how to rejoice in the guaranteed victory. There's a promise here. There's a person here. He's a seed of the woman. 
Adam says her name's Eve. She's the mother of all living. Doesn't say he's a seed of the man. Because when he comes, he's going to be the seed of David. And he's going to be born of a virgin. But he's not going to be born through a human father. Because he has a heavenly father. You see, the seed of the woman is going to come. And the serpent is going to have the power to bruise his heel. But he'll shake it off and stomp the head of the serpent. Not yet, not yet, not yet. But you and I know a day's coming, don't we? Does that matter to you? Man, I'm stranded on that. I'm falling helpless on that. That's my hope. The provision is abundant life now. You know what Jesus said? He said, the thief cometh but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. That abundant life began for me one day when I looked away from the best that I could do knowing that it was sufficient and looked at what Jesus had done knowing that it was sufficient. He said, it's finished. And God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased and I'm in him. I'm in him. Abundant life began then. And it won't ever end. One relationship I have that will never be broken. And that's a relationship that I have with the seed of the woman. He's become real to me. He's become personal to me. That's eternal life. Now, some people think about eternal life. I'll have it when I die. No, no, no. Got it now. Got it now. When I turned away from hoping in myself in my righteousness and my goodness and put my faith and trust in his righteousness and what he's done for me, I became a recipient of the gift of eternal life right then. It's a new, it's a new quality of life, not just a length of life, a new quality of life that begins now and never ends. God's building another garden. We get a glimpse of it in Revelation Chapter 22, I used to love to read this to a suffering saint who couldn't get out from her home, but when I went, she most always wanted me to read these verses at chapter 22 in the book of Revelation. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And I still hear that old saint say, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And in her pain, she looked away to another day. Friend, he's building a new garden. Let me tell you this. In that garden, there's no snake. No sin. No separation. No suffering. And no struggle. The battle will one day be over. And he's already sealed the victory. 
You don't have a hope outside of Him. You don't have a hope outside of Him. You don't have a prayer outside of Him. But in Him, you have everything you need to be all God wants you to be till He takes you home to glory. And you sit down one day by the river of the water of life and take off your shoes and let your toes twinkle in the river of the water of life. And you pick a leaf off the tree of life and you eat it without any dressing. And you know there's no snake in this garden. Glory to his name. Glory to his name. And I'll tell you when this blesses me the most, when I'm the most frustrated and the weakest and the most broken, it blesses me the most to know he's got the victory sealed up. Some people don't know it now, but one of these days, everybody is going to know that the seed of the woman has placed his heel on the head of the serpent and we'll study war no more. May we stand. Oh Lord, grant Lord that we may be close enough to the front lines in this battle that we'll know how to rejoice in the victory that you've already received. We ask it in the name of Jesus.